0: My, was that ever great to hear you all sing, all of us singing together. What a wonderful expression of God's grace in our life. Will you take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? I want to spend one more Sunday away from our exposition of 1 Corinthians. And I'd like to speak to you about the marks of a persevering church. We're going to be looking at this chapter. It's just 10 verses. But before I read it to you, I want to help you gather your thoughts a little bit so you can understand why I feel this is a very important passage for us to examine here at the end of the year as we prepare for a new year. Think about it. Here we are, the what second to the last day in 2018. And we can look back on this last year and celebrate so many blessings that God has lavished upon us. But we can also look back and see that this was a year filled with very distressing events in our country. Events that will undoubtedly accelerate the persecution that the church is experiencing and will continue to experience in the coming year. I was thinking about this, and frankly, this is not the same country I was raised in. We are now on the other side of Woodstock, those of you that can remember that. The godless, immoral, dope fiends that we used to call hippies, and now their children are actually running our country. And they're teaching our students and colleges and universities, high schools, and so forth. The sexual revolution is basically over, and immorality has won the field. We now merely await the laws to be changed to support the agenda of the ungodly. If you think about it, even in this last year, we've seen the most basic liberties that are enshrined in our Constitution being under attack. Of course, the First and the Second Amendment being the primary targets. You will recall the First Amendment has to do with the freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press. Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. The homosexual and transgender liberation movement is a very well-funded strategic initiative designed to fundamentally outlaw biblical Christianity. You will recall the Colorado baker, whose name was Jack Phillips, who refused to create a cake celebrating homosexual marriage. You will recall that he won his case in the Supreme Court in a ruling of seven to two. But on the very day that the Supreme Court decided to hear his case In June of 2017, I was reading that an attorney called Jack's shop asking for a custom cake. The attorney wanted a cake that would be blue on the outside and pink on the inside in order to celebrate that attorney's transition from male to female. And when Jack declined this request, the attorney filed a complaint with the same Colorado agency that prosecuted Jack before. So even with a Supreme Court victory behind him, Jack is facing government harassment once again. Folks, these people will never give up. We live in Sodom and Gomorrah. I hope you understand that. Religious liberty is now considered a privilege rather than a right and can therefore be rescinded if it threatens the the secular conception of humanity or of dignity, especially as it relates to sexuality. I was reading last week an essay entitled We Hold These Truths, Defending Liberty in a Perilous Age, written by uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, Jr., president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in that that article, he said this, quote, In 2016, the chairman of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, Martin R. Castro, stated in an official report of the commission the following. I want you to listen to this very carefully, because this summarizes what is happening in our country. Quote, The phrases religious liberty and religious freedom Will stand for nothing except hypocrisy, so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any form of intolerance End quote. Now folks, where this is heading is that Christian churches and colleges, university seminaries are going to eventually be forced to accept homosexuals, and transgenders, and even be forced to hire them to offer same-sex marital housing. Pastors will go to jail when they preach against these things. And if they do, churches are going to lose their tax-exempt status, and on and on it's going to go. But folks, none of this should surprise us. I mean, Jesus told us that if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me first, right? And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 and beginning in verse 12 that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He went on to say, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we might ask, well, what are we supposed to do? Let me tell you what we don't do. What we don't do is compromise and embrace the world's definition of, of tolerance that frankly mocks God's law. We are not to become like the world in order to somehow win it. In fact, Jesus said in Luke six twenty six, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Folks, the answer is to love people enough to give them the gospel. The answer is to go and make disciples. That's what Jesus has called us to do. To teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, Jesus said. To preach Christ and him crucified as Paul did to the wicked city in Corinth and and wherever he went. The answer is unleashing the supernatural power of the gospel. And that's what we're all about by God's grace. That's what Calvary Bible Church is about. And I'm so thankful for that. I look back over the years. I'm going into my 23rd year now as your pastor. And I look back and see a church that has endured enormous attacks. Even this last year, we endured attacks. (laughs) One of them almost cost me my life. And yet we still stand stronger than ever by God's grace. And I can therefore echo Paul's commendation found in our text here this morning in 1 Thessalonians 1 where he praises them for the virtues that set them apart as a church that would persevere against all odds in their culture. And how is that possible? How could a church possibly persevere? Only by the power of God. Because God set his love upon his people in eternity past. And here, dear friends, in this passage, we see ten evidences of their election, of God setting his love upon his own, spirit-empowered virtues that will sustain them to the end. And I want to remind you of these in an effort this morning to encourage you and to thank you for being such a church and to give God glory for all that he has done. Before I read the text, I want to do one other thing. Let me give you the context just briefly. You may recall that Thessalonica was located in the northern part of of what what is modern Greece today. And it was a large seaport town of about a quarter of a million people. Large city. The largest and most important city in the Roman province of Macedonia. And Paul first came to Thessalonica in his second missionary journey. And as a result of his ministry there, a number of Jews and many Gentile proselytes who had become Jews, and even many of the upper-class Greek women believed in the gospel and were miraculously saved and became a part of this church. And it's amazing to think how these Gentiles, as the text says, turned from their idols to serve the living God. All right, with that background now, Put yourself where they were when they first heard this letter. You're probably in some portico, or maybe you're on the beach someplace in a beautiful uh, setting where you could all gather together. And you're about to hear from God himself. You realize this because you are going to hear read a letter from the inspired apostle Paul. A man that you had grown to love, but a man that had to flee from your city in order to just survive. So with the air now electric with excitement, okay, you're about to hear this. Everyone gets very still and they prepare their hearts to hear from God. And then someone stands and reads this. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy To the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you from the wrath to come. Like cool water to a dehydrated tongue, this was spiritual water to a parched soul. As these dear people heard this word, I'm sure many of them couldn't wait to write, write it down, to have their own copy. And many of them, by the way, memorized the epistle so that they could have them I trust we will do the same. As we look at the text, let me just comment briefly on the salutation. Uh, letters in the Greco-Roman world followed a standard format that included a salutation, then a body, then a conclusion, and that's what we have in 1 Thessalonians. But this salutation begins, he says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, and here he, he, Paul is humbly including his co-laborers who served with him. Of course, Paul was the Jewish name for Saul, very appropriate for men of that day who had descended from the tribe of Benjamin, from which centuries earlier King Saul had arisen. Some of the early church fathers saw special significance in the Greek name Paulus, O-S at the end, because it was derived from the Roman or the Latin Paulus, U.S. on the end there, which meant little or small. In fact, Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, called him, quote, the man three cubits tall, a long cubits 20 inches. So Paul was about five feet tall, very short man. The Acts of Paul and Thecla, which is one of the New Testament apocryphal books, described him as, quote, bald-headed, bow-legged, Strongly built, a man small in size, with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, but full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. Quite a description. Well, regardless of his physical stature, we know that Paul regarded himself as very small spiritually. In fact, the most insignificant he called himself the very least of all of the saints in Ephesians three 8. And then you have Silvanus, also called Silas. We don't know a lot about him. He was probably a Hellenistic Jew and a prominent member, we know, of the Jerusalem church. He was sent with Paul to Antioch to communicate the decision of the Council of Jerusalem, remember, in Acts 15. And from there, after Paul had an argument with Barnabas, Over John Mark, Paul then chose Silvanus, or Silas, to be his co-worker in his second missionary journey. He, by the way, was also a scribe for Peter. And then, of course, you have Timothy, who was a native of Lystra, a city in Galatia, which is Asia Minor. And he was Paul's son in the faith, a protege who Paul trusted to send on various uh, crucial missions to tend to the affairs of young churches that needed help. And later he became the the pastor at the church at Ephesus and was himself eventually imprisoned, according to Hebrews 13. So together, these three men were instrumental in founding the church at Thessalonica. And he says to the church of Thessalonica, church, ecclesia, the called out ones. Many times it's translated the elect ones. And this is especially used in connection to what Paul says in verse four, his choice of you to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and there he emphasizes this very visible union they had with Christ. And he says, grace to you and peace. In other words, I want you to experience the reality of God's unmerited favor in your life. I want you to enjoy the the forgiveness of sins, past, present, and future. I want you to enjoy the promise of eternal life and all that belongs to the redeemed, the sight of glory. And also, he says, peace. I want you to experience Both the objective peace of being reconciled to a holy God through faith in Christ, but I also want you to experience the subjective peace of the presence of God, the one that you have offended so deeply, to experience that subjective peace in your life come what may. And then Paul moves from this salutation to the body of his letter. And he begins with verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Dear friends, I can identify with this statement so, so clearly with respect to you as my Calvary Bible Church family. And here's why. Verse 3. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. It is a heart-wrenching thing to talk with some of my pastor friends scattered around the world. And some of them have churches that are filled with people that profess Christ, but they do not possess Christ. Jesus warned about this in various passages, especially Matthew 7, where he tells us that the the majority of people who call themselves Christians will never enter the kingdom because they are self-deceived. Only those who do the will of the Father will enter. But here in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he is thrilled because he can look at this church and he can see true believers chosen by God. Now, how does he know? How does he know this for sure with any measure of confidence? And therefore, what should we look for in ourselves? We might put it this way. What are some of the characteristics of genuine state, saving faith? Or to state it in the context of Paul's words here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, his choice of you. And what follows, dear friends, and I'll go over very briefly, is ten praiseworthy virtues that give evidence of God's election his choice of those who belong to him and he begins with three characteristics stated in verse 3 everyone can observe these evidences in their own life if they truly belong to the Lord, and that is their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. Notice again, verse two, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. By the way, this indicates that they prayed together. These three men, they prayed together, mentioning each one of them by name. So there was no vagueness in their prayers. Verse three, constantly bearing in mind First of all, your work of faith. And this is always the first fruit of grace, is it not? Number one, their work of faith. And we want to bear in mind that genuine faith is a gift from God that begins with the spirit-empowered brokenness that he brings to bear upon a man's soul a brokenness over personal sin, a profound awareness that there is salvation and no one else apart from Christ. And so faith requires humility that leads to repentance. And obviously this was evident in the lives of these people. And imagine what this would have been like, what a shock it would have been to the families and the friends of those people who, who lived with these new Christians to suddenly see their faith in Christ. Jews and Gentiles coming together in mutual love for a crucified Savior. Work of faith, he says. Now, this does not speak of salvation by works. It speaks of works produced by faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Salvation is always by faith alone, apart from any human contribution. Beloved, we never earn our salvation. I think you realize that. We make no contribution to our salvation. Romans 3, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. And he goes on to say that sinners are justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Propitiation meaning, meaning the satisfaction or the appeasement of God's wrath through his blood. So when he speaks of their work of faith, he speaks of the holy conduct that faith produces. In fact, the term work, ergon in the original language, speaks of an actual deed or a righteous act or accomplishment. And folks, this will always be a certain proof of the transforming power of God, of what it means to be born again, regeneration, that instantaneous supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead where he causes that radical transformation, a radical change in a person, so that suddenly they begin to glorify Christ and honor Christ with deeds of righteousness and so forth. In fact, faith without these kinds of works is dead, James 2.17. Now imagine, dear friends, what this would have looked like. These dear folks, we know according to verses 6 through 7, received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Obviously, they did not conform to the culture. Instead, their lives confronted the culture. They rose above all of the insults, all of the criticism and accusations, even in the midst of bitter persecution. People could see a noticeable difference in their lives. And I would ask you, can people see that in your life? Can they see that in your family? And I can say for the most part of the people here at Calvary Bible Church, the answer is a resounding yes. Notice the second evidence of God's choice of them, their labor of love. Labor in the original language speaks of, of grueling, strenuous, exhausting toil. It's like a man that's straining with every muscle in his body to to climb a cliff. These people exerted all they had to advance the kingdom and give glory to Christ in their lives. And their genuine love for Christ, therefore, produced within them the power to even love their enemies, their brothers and sisters in Christ as well, which sometimes, frankly, can be very, very difficult, right? Right. I love the old saying, to dwell above with saints we love will be grace and glory, but to live below with saints we know. Now that's a different story. Now remember, these are Jews and Gentiles that are coming together in one church. And prior to coming to faith in Christ, they hated each other in ways that you can't even imagine. Only a miracle from God could unite these extremes in a bond of love where they actually prefer one another in love. And this kind of love is the first fruit of those walking by the spirit, not by the flesh. In fact, it's a certain proof of salvation. Remember in 1 John 3 and verse 14, John says, we know that we have passed out of death from life. In other words, we know that we have been saved because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. So not only... Are they thankful over their work of faith and labor of love? But we see a third evidence of their election in verse three, and this would be the steadfastness of hope. I call it notice verse three, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and father. Knowing, brethren beloved by God, in other words, the the facts speak so clearly that the the conclusion is obvious. Knowing, brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. In other words, there is clear evidence of God's choice of you in eternity past. And he uses the word steadfast. Steadfast. You remember that Greek word, hupomone. It, it means steadfast endurance, endurance or perseverance. It carries the idea of staying under a pressure. This is a persevering church. This is a church like Calvary Bible Church by God's grace. Their endurance was inspired by their hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They, they had a persevering Anticipation of seeing the glory of Christ, of receiving an eternal inheritance, a motivating force that caused them to transcend all of the difficulties of their life there in Thessalonica. And Paul was afraid that in the face of extreme opposition and persecution, the enemy would attempt would tempt them to abandon their faith. But they didn't not out of some inner resolution to somehow tough it out, not out of some commitment to strengthen themselves on their own, but because of their confidence that Christ would do all that he has promised. And folks, this is a spirit-empowered reality in the life of a true believer. Think about this. John speaks of this again in 1 John 5, beginning in verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. True believers are, as Paul says in Titus 2.11, they are the people that are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. And I ask, do you live in light of his promised return? Are you anticipating his return? I hope you are, and I know most of you are. Solomon described this in Proverbs 4 and 18. He says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. As I thought about that text, I am reminded that as we traverse this path of of life, we don't go from light to darkness, but rather we go from diffused light to the clear, resplendent light of the glory of God that we will one day see. When we see God in all of His glory, the older and more mature we get in Christ, the clearer we are able to see the, the, the light of His grace, and the more we long for it, the more we long to see Christ face to face. Just talk to older people who have walked with Christ for years, and you will hear them say that over and over again. The brilliant light of heaven that was once a, a distant glimmer begins to blaze with the, with, with the, with the full light of the sun. And there is no sunset to the believer, dear friends only a sunrise, and the more we commit ourselves to our work of faith, our labor of love, and our steadfastness of hope, the more we are able to transcend the darkness of this world and to live in the light of his glory. This was evident in the lives of those early saints. Then in verses 5 through 10, he goes on to describe seven more evidences of election that build upon the first three and you might think of these as as benchmarks that provide such a a tremendous source of encouragement for th- those believers some of which might have been questioning you know do a, do i really know christ everyone could see their work of faith their labor of love their steadfastness of hope but notice number 4 they could also see what i would call a reception of spirit empowered preaching folks True believers long for that. Phony believers can't stand it. Notice verse four, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. In other words, we know that you have been chosen by God because our gospel did not come to you as some ordinary discourse. Spoken by just any philosopher, but rather it had a supernatural power to it. It had a force to it. It changed your very nature. We can see this. That's why unbelievers who come to a church like this, within about three or four minutes, they will be bored out of their mind when I begin to preach. But it came, he says, empowered in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. By the way, full conviction refers to the immediate effect of the Spirit's power uh, and presence in the hearts of the missionaries that spoke the word, not a reference to the Thessalonians who heard it. In other words, Paul and Silas and Timothy were acutely aware that the Holy Spirit had anointed them, had given them a word so that they could speak for God giving his revelation, they knew that God was speaking through them. They knew that his word would either soften or harden hearts, as it always does. They knew that not only they were unleashing the power of the Holy Spirit that could break through the walls of ignorance and unbelief, but they knew also that it would change these people forever, those that were truly born again. And certainly only the Holy Spirit can penetrate the conscience and bring genuine conviction of sin and bring a hard-hearted sinner to a place of repentance and a place of, of, of belief. And boy, they were not disappointed with these dear folks. The Thessalonians heard the message of the gospel And they saw his power in the apostolic proclamation. Paul described this as well. You may recall in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning at verse 4, he said, My my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And folks, this is what is lacking in the church today in so many places. Spirit-empowered gospel preaching. We don't need more men with profound and persuasive words, men that are witty and funny or want to have a conversation with people so that we can find common ground. That's not what we need. We need men that are obsessed with the glory of God and have absolute confidence in His Word to do what God says it will do. And that is to bring men and women and boys and girls to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need men who absolutely know, as it says here, with full conviction that the message that they are preaching is the word of God and carries with it the power of God. Men who could fully identify with God's word to Jeremiah. Remember when he declared in Jeremiah 23, 29, not my word like fire. And he went on to say, And like a hammer which shatters a rock. These kind of men will experience spiritual fruit in their ministry. Their churches will persevere. And their lives will match their message. Now think about it, like every pastor, Paul had to endure malicious slander and, and betrayal. There's always going to be goats among the sheep. And wherever he went in all of the churches, there were there's always these types of things brewing. But his proven character was his greatest shield. And for this reason, he said at the end of verse 5, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Unlike the traveling philosophers of that day that that, that plied their trade to, to earn a living, Paul and Silas and, and Timothy, they had very different motives. They weren't in it to make money. They were in it for the salvation of men's souls and the glory of God. So they worked hard not to be a financial burden to the people. They were willing to suffer persecution so that others might be saved. Their lives demonstrated that same love and purity and power as their message. And I have to say, my constant prayer is that the Holy Spirit will fill me and give me wisdom and boldness and clarity and love. So that I can speak truth to you. That I might be accurate enough to cause men to either take offense or be saved. You've got to be clear enough. So one of those two things is going to happen. I pray that my private life will match my message. And because when it does, my, my public life will be no different. And this is true for all of us who serve Christ, right? Well, not only could everyone see the reception of the spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel, but number five, they could see their imitation of Christ. Notice verse six, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. You see, folks, a likeness to Christ will always be visible evidence of election. Paul and his friends were loving but bold, and they, they were gentle, they were caring, they were compassionate, they were hard-working But they were firm and forthright, and their lives modeled Christ. And the Thessalonians modeled them and therefore imitated Christ. This theme of imitation is found in several of Paul's letters. Remember, in Philippians 3, verse 17, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And in 1 Corinthians 4, in verse 16, after giving a list of, of all the ways he had conducted himself in their presence, he said this, I exhort you, therefore, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. You see, Paul understood this. He understood that his life provided a model of Christ for people who knew nothing of who Christ really was. So that they could look at him and have a living object lesson of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, verse 6 seems to limit their imitation primarily to... The way they received this word in great distress. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of the severe suffering that you were encountering. You welcomed the message with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know what a joy it is to shepherd people who want to imitate Christ. What a blessing that is. We as elders, we meet every Monday night and, and we, we always celebrate this. We rejoice in that. I know so many pastors who do not have the freedom to preach the word for fear that the church is going to throw them out. Now, you may eventually do that. I hope not. But what a joy it is to be around people that love Christ and want to imitate him. Paul also saw saw number six joy in tribulation. Again, notice he says, having having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. My it's a it's amazing to hear some of the stories that I hear from people that ride in in other parts of the world that listen to this pulpit. And to hear the stories of persecution, those especially in Muslim countries, communist countries. You see, friends, only genuine saving faith will be accompanied by what he says here, the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Only real faith can welcome the gospel in spite of severe suffering Those whose faith is a sham will not persevere in the fires of affliction. It's just not going to happen. What Paul saw in the Thessalonians was true saving faith. Jews and Gentiles willing to risk everything. Remember now, they were willing to risk their families and become social outcasts. Many of them lost their jobs. Eventually, many of them lost their lives. Folks, may I remind you, as I said from the outset, we now live in a post-Christian country. Make no mistake. Even though we still enjoy many of the freedoms of the United States and the Constitution, but hostility is mounting towards true Christianity. Christianity. Underscore true Christianity, biblical Christianity, not the Christless Christianity that makes up most of what is called Christians, Christian today. But, folks, we will never survive unless we, too, receive the word with the joy of the Holy Spirit, as he says there in verse six. And how we endure trials is one of the most powerful evidences of genuine saving faith. He also noticed, number seven, exemplary lifestyles. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. In other words, because of their joyful reception of the gospel, in the midst of all of that opposition, they became an example to all of the other churches. Churches that existed in Philippi and Berea and Athens and in Corinth and perhaps even in Sincreia. And even their enemies could see the change in their lives, a change that they couldn't explain. I've heard many of your testimonies. And when you come to Christ, all of a sudden your families wonder, what happened to this person? Your friends wonder, what happened to this person? Well, they've been born again. And, of course, with the Thessalonians, it it spread like wildfire because... Thessalonica was a thriving seaport city. It was located on the Via Ignatia Highway that connected them with uh, the the province of Macedonia and beyond. And so the news of their faith in Christ spread very rapidly. But folks like a tree that endures strong winds and therefore digs its roots deep into the ground so it can stand firm. These early saints became firmly rooted in Christ as they experienced mounting persecution. And folks, we must each ask ourselves, am I a person that imitates Christ? Am I experiencing even persecution for my bold faith? And do I enjoy God's presence in my life and experience his joy even in the midst of persecution or am I, A whiner that shakes my fist at God is my life an example to other believers. And certainly as I look at the majority of the people at Calvary Bible Church, I'm thankful that I can say, yes, I see that here. I see that here. And of course, an exemplary lifestyle is going to include the eighth evidence of their election, and that is bold evangelism. Notice verse 8. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and a but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. Sounded forth is a fascinating term in the original language. It's a term that is used even outside of the New Testament to refer to the, the, the loud blast of a blaring trumpet. And I love our trumpeter here. I love to hear that trumpet sound. It's also used to describe rolling thunder. And it's, it's in the perfect tense here in the original language. So it denotes this idea that, that there is this constant, continual trumpeting of the gospel message that's going forth from these people in Thessalonica and aided by their strategic location, their, their spirit-empowered testimony was so influential and commanding that they developed a reputation that was known far and wide. And I'm so thankful to see that with you dear saints here at Calvary Bible Church, to see the impact that you have in your families and in your community and the way God continues to allow his messages to go forth around the world through the Internet. And as we will be announcing very soon through the radio. But number nine, they also saw what I would call a reversal of allegiances. Oh, this is so important. Notice the end of verse nine and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Now, you must understand how important this is. You see, Gentile idol worship was at the heart of everything they did. In fact, it was very dangerous not to honor other gods. That's what they thought. It's a very dangerous thing. To offend a god could bring a curse upon your whole family. It could ruin your business. It could destroy the entire community. Gentiles belonged to what were called trade unions, or trade guilds, like our unions, a little bit, similar to them. And a trade guild all had a patron god or goddess that they worshipped. So people whose livelihood, for example, depended upon agriculture, honored gods that assured fertility and so forth. And everyone honored the gods of their local government, the ones that the local government honored And many population areas had their own patron god or goddess that they worshipped. And when business was going well, that guild correctly honored its patron god. And when it wasn't going well, then they would do things to somehow sacrifice to this patron god or goddess. And depending upon the area of residence, people honored the ruling Caesar as god. So these gods were at the core of everything that they did. But what happens to these believers at Thessalonica? When they come to Christ, suddenly they jettison all of those superstitions. And they boldly turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. By implication, rather than the non-existent false gods that they were serving. I might also add that the term serve does not mean they just attended church. They didn't just start showing up at church when people met and kind of hung out a little bit and had some meals and, and left it at that. The term serve comes from a Greek word that means to serve as a slave. In other words, these saints reversed Their allegiances, they abandoned their slavery to false gods and by God's grace, by God's power, they became slaves to the living and true God. So they obeyed him in every aspect of their life. This speaks of an internal, wholehearted, joyful commitment to be totally devoted to God. And the final evidence of God's choice of them is in verse 10. He says, and to wait, which, by the way, carries the idea of of a sustained expectation. Let me translate it that way. To have a sustained expectation for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And this is the 10th and final evidence of their election of God's choice of them what I would call an eager anticipation of Christ's return. You see, having been utterly transformed by his first coming, they're patiently waiting and eagerly waiting for his second coming. They knew that God had raised him from the dead. They knew that he was alive. They knew that he would return to rescue them from the wrath to come from God's eternal and settled indignation against sin, which increases daily against sinners because of their idolatry, their immorality, their rejection of the gospel. So what he's saying here is that true believers, those that truly know and love Christ, will have a sustained unwavering expectation that the Lord Jesus Christ will return to this earth as king of kings and Lord of lords. True believers have that in their heart. And the redeemed will always glory in this doctrine. They will live in light of it, knowing their glorious savior could come at any time. So there, dear friends, we have Ten evidences of election, if you want to think of it that way. Ten characteristics of the lives of these people that thrilled the Apostle Paul and Silas and Timothy. And caused them to, quote, know, verse 4, brethren, blood by God, his choice of you. Ten praiseworthy virtues that would cause them to be able to persevere against all odds. Their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope, their reception of spirit-empowered preaching, their imitation of Christ, joy and tribulation, their exemplary lifestyles, bold evangelism, a reversal of allegiances, and finally, an eager anticipation of Christ's return. And I rejoice knowing that this can be said of most of you here at Calvary Bible Church. And for this reason, as w- if we continue... To love Christ, and certainly we will because of His persevering grace, we will be able to persevere. And I don't want to be overly pessimistic, but I want to be realistic. Folks, this coming new year is going to reveal an escalation of what we're beginning to see. And I don't want us to be the proverbial frog in the water. You know, where we're not aware that the heat's being turned up, but nor do I want us to panic. What I want us to do is celebrate Christ and live for His glory. And by God's grace, these, these virtues will continue to grow in us and manifest themselves in ways that will not only cause others to see the power of the gospel, but also help us to persevere in difficult times to come. And I'm so thankful for you, the saints at Calvary Bible Church, because you truly exemplify these great virtues. And I give God all of the glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for these great truths and and the power that animates our our hearts, our minds, our wills, so that we can live for your glory despite the difficulties of life. I pray that you will protect us as a church, that you will continue to grow us in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And I pray that if there be any within the sound of my voice that knows nothing of what it means to be in relationship with the living God through faith in Christ, those that know nothing of what it means to turn from the idols of their life to worship and serve the living and true God. I pray that today will be the day that you will so overwhelm them with the horror of their sin and the inevitable consequences of it that they will truly bow before the cross and cry out for the mercy that you will give so rich and so free. I pray that today will be the day that they will experience the miracle of the new birth. Bless us as we enter into this new year. Use us mightily for the sake of the kingdom. And we will be careful to give you all of the glory. For it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.